it's natural to be rebellious, to resist oppression. That is a rational act by any human being. And when people function collectively, it is a rational act to organize and to create mechanisms by which that becomes a collective effort from the inside, from inside the walls. You are listening to The People Yes, a podcast of international conversation and music on social change, brought to you by the Alliance for Global Justice. Each month, we hear from organizers and movement leaders from around the world and listen to the music that's been inspiring us. For more information, check out our website at www.afgj.org. Welcome to the inaugural episode of The People Yes, coming to you from Tucson, Arizona, home base of the Alliance for Global Justice. We are a grassroots organization rooted in international solidarity in our struggle for liberation from the empire and for a better, more beautiful world. This first episode, we will explore what it means to be a political prisoner in the United States in order to understand today's increase in politically motivated incarcerations. Here to help us is archivist and former political prisoner Claude Marx, who we'll be speaking with in the second half of the show. We are also excited to share Tucson talent Jess Najima, whose songs we'll be listening to throughout the hour. To start us off, I am joined by two members of the Alliance for Global Justice, Eduardo and Natalia, who have been involved in our frequent reporting and comprehensive list of political prisoners in the United States. Eduardo and Natalia, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Let's start with the basics. How does the Alliance for Global Justice define a political prisoner? Who makes it on this list? So for the Alliance for Global Justice, it's important to understand that the political prisoner is a person that is incarcerated because of their activities for liberation and from resistance of the United States empire or policies, you know? So for us, in order to understand what a political prisoner is, it is also important to understand what the U.S. empire and what prison imperialism is. So a definition that we really like to use is one created by Noam Chomsky, in which he mentions that the U.S. empire is an integrated policy of U.S. military and economic supremacy in order to exploit the world. So when we have this in mind, it's really easy for us to understand why the United States is willing to expand its prison model to the entire world. What we have seen during the last years is that the United States has been spreading its model of mass incarceration over 33 different countries. Mainly, we're talking about uh, non-white or developing nations. And these programs, the U.S. involvement in other countries' prison systems, involve the construction of new prisons, uh, prison guard trainings, accreditation, data management, over and overall design, among other things. And we use, in order to talk about this system, we refer to it as uh, prison imperialism. And we use this phrase because it is a U.S. model that we're exporting around the world that contributes to raising incarceration rates and inhumane conditions for prisoners. And in the same way, we recognize that prison imperialism, along with foreign occupations and military bases, police and border militarization, neoliberal economics, and subsequent austerity measures, uh, media manipulation and intimidation, are all part of the infrastructure of the empire. So when we talk about the U.S. empire, we have to talk about all the systems that allow it to happen and how prison imperialism is one part of a whole system that warranties the United States supremacy in the world. When we talk about political prisoners, again, as I mentioned in, at the beginning, uh, we are talking about people who has been willing to challenge these systems in order to protect the well-being of the majority. 
when we talk about political prisoners, we focus on the reasons why these people have been criminalized. Whether the circumstances of the alleged crimes are true or false, we reject the individualized and out-of-context um, treatment of the case as simply common crimes. So we believe that in order to release a political prisoner or in order to declare somebody a political prisoner, we also have to talk about the context in which this person was detained. In, in many, of the, the, many of the times we see how these political prisoners are people trying to resist the empire and how we are talking about people who are targets because of their actions are a risk of the United States, to the, to the United States. Um, specifically here in the United States, what do you see in terms of the demographics of political prisoners? So when we talk about the demographic of U.S. political prisoners, we see how 38 or over 38% of political prisoners in the United States are Black. And of the total population of political prisoners in the United States, 72% is people of color. I think that if we understand prison imperialism as a construction or like the system that allows the U.S. supremacy in the world, and we talk about political prisoners as the people who are trying to resist the systems, it is easy for us to understand and see how black, indigenous, and brown people, people of color in the United States, are the ones trying to change the status quo according to the history of the United States. We are seeing black people fighting for black liberation. When we talk about uh, political prisoners, we can see indigenous people opposing to the construction of the wall or opposing to the construction construction of pipelines. We can talk about Asian people trying to resist the oppression under which many people were sent to jail back in the 40s, right? When we talk about political prisoners and when we talk about the demographics, it's also to see that the demographics that make the majority of political prisoners in the United States is basically people that have been fighting for their liberation. And of course, we see white people as political prisoners. There are white people that are political prisoners, but mostly, most of the times we're talking about folks who are allies of other people's liberations. The political prisoner list that's published on the Alliance's website states, while we do not call all prisoners political prisoners, we must note that they are all subjects to a politically motivated system of oppression. Speaking of the term prisoners of the empire and prison imperialism, are all incarcerated people prisoners of the empire? So when we talk about political prisoners, we talk about people who have been resisting the U.S. empire inside the United States. Uh, when we talk about prisoners of the U.S. empire, we are talking about of political prisoners who have been incarcerated because of their activities for liberation and for their resistance to the United States empire, or because they are, for some reason or another, uh, consider obstacles to U.S. empire and its designs. When we are talking about prisoners of the United States empire, we are talking about people who has been challenging United States foreign policies. Uh, some of the examples that we have or that we have seen most recently as like political prisoners in Honduras. And we are seeing how political prisoners are in Honduras are people who were trying to oppose the United States supported coup in the country. But also we are seeing how these people have been trying to protect its natural resources, its people from the exploitation of private companies, which most of them get their resources, their economic power from the United States. So when we talk about prisoners of the empire, we are also talking about people whose activities are related to anti-war, anti-militarist, pro-democracy, anti-nuclear, ecological, uh, whistleblowers, and journalists, you know? When we talk about prisoners of the United States empire, we're talking about indigenous peoples fighting for the liberation, right? Another re like recent example that we have seen in the past few years is the people from Puerto Rico who has been detained and slowly released from U.S. prisons or from prisons in Puerto Rico. And these are people that were fighting for the independence of their country. Natalia, since the uprising against police brutality, has there been an increase in politically motivated arrests and in the number of political prisoners in the United States? 
So yeah, it's definitely led to a rise in politically motivated arrests and consequentially the number of political prisoners we have here in the U.S. There have been at least 10,000 politically motivated arrests carried out since the eruption of protest in late May across at least 40 cities. So what we're seeing is that major protest sites like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Louisville, Portland, Kenosha, and Minneapolis, of course, just to name a few, have seen spikes in these protest-related mass arrests and indefinite detentions. The last time we've seen a comparable spike like this was during the Ferguson uprising that followed the police murder of Michael Brown in 2014, but what we're seeing today is still kind of unprecedented. And this is because, for one thing, we're living through a major historical moment right now. We are witnessing what some have described to be the longest sustained mobilization in modern U.S. history. So it's not surprising that this massive wave of resistance has been met with an equally massive backlash of political repression. But in addition to this, we're living in the midst of this period of hypercriminalization of protests. And this is really important because since Ferguson, states have put forth at least 154 new laws and restrictions on protests. 54 of which have already become law in at least 14 states. In effect, as Slate Magazine journalist Philip McHarris has described, police can take anything such as a curfew violation and arrest people, fabricate a resisting arrest or an assault on an officer charge, and essentially turn protesting into felony charges. So just to illustrate this, the National Lawyers Guild has reported frequently on charges such as quote-unquote resisting arrest, disorderly conduct, and failure to disperse. And these charges ultimately translate anywhere from low-level misdemeanors to federal felonies. So with some of these new restrictions on protests being institutionalized, what we're seeing is that arbitrary and often fabricated charges against protesters can be used to further enhance cases, which leads to, to higher bail amounts, which ultimately leads to longer potential prison sentences. So just to put this into perspective, the longest prison sentence a Ferguson protester received was eight years for lighting a quick trip trash can on fire. Just to juxtapose this, we're now seeing two New York attorneys facing 45 years to a lifetime in prison for a similar accusation, right? For allegedly attempting to light an empty police vehicle on fire in an isolated area. We know now that at least 300 people have been charged with federal crimes related to protests. All of this to say is that not only are we now seeing tens of thousands getting arrested on largely arbitrary charges, but we're also seeing a new wave of political prisoners being persecuted by the justice system, which is ultimately using these felony charges leveraged against them as a suppression tactic. Thank you both so much for your time and knowledge on this. We'll be hearing more from Natalia in conversation with former political prisoner Claude Marx on the second half of this episode. If you'd like to learn more about Prisoners of the Empire, you can find our list of U.S. political prisoners, an archive of articles, and ways to take action at afgj.org under our project Prison Imperialism, which we will dig into in future episodes of The People Yes. Eduardo and Natalia, thanks again for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. I will not go to Florida. That is not the place for me.
I won't even drive to Texas and Venice Juneteenth. The black folks still ain't free. Well, they killed my sister Sandra Bland and covered her up. Missouri ain't got nothing I wanna see. I don't wanna go to Missouri. Figured it out before the NAACP told me where they shot down Michael Brown and let a murdering cop. Go free Injustice crying off the album Queenie by Jess Najima. Stay tuned for an interview with the musician and more just after this break. For over 40 years, the Alliance for Global Justice has helped pave the path of resistance against unjust U.S. foreign policies. Our work is in building a strong, grassroots movement to challenge the U.S. economic and foreign policies that denigrate the world's people and devastate our lands. Rooted in international solidarity, we began this work as the Nicaragua Network the largest organized group in support of the Sandinista revolution over the U.S.-backed Somoza dictatorship. Today, we continue to oppose U.S. interference abroad while confronting national human rights violations and contributing resources and analysis to the greater movement for peace and justice. Visit our website at www.afgj to learn about our projects across the Americas, sign up for urgent email alerts and weekly briefings, and explore our reports and other offerings. This wouldn't be possible without the support of people like you, our supporters and listeners, so please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Alliance for Global Justice so that we can continue to grow and strengthen this important work. Link is in the show notes. Joining us now in conversation is Claude Marx. Claude is the director of Freedom Archives, preserving media, documenting progressive movements and culture from the 1960s to the 1990s. Claude spent his own time as a political prisoner for actions in solidarity with Puerto Rican revolutionary Oscar Lopez Rivera, who in the 1980s, Claude attempted to free from politically motivated imprisonment. Claude, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's an honor to have you. So you've done a lot of work on behalf of political prisoners and have actually spent time as a political prisoner yourself. Could you start us off by telling us what exactly a political prisoner is? Well, this is an interesting term because um, for one, the United States denies that there are, are political prisoners in this country. 
even though they freely use that term when they apply it to political imprisonment in other places. Um, so in general, uh, it's assumed that there's no such thing in the United States. So let me address that part of the question first. Um, and I think there's different ways of looking at the word political imprisonment. Uh, for one, there are many people who have been active over time uh, politically and have come into conflict with the state, with the government, both because of actions that they've participated in or things that they've been accused of in the context of government repression. So whether or not uh, actual things happened, there are people in a group that I call political prisoners who've been locked up for many decades because of their activism stemming back from the 60s and 70s in many cases. Of course, anytime we're in a period of political repression, there's new people who are also rounded up and prosecuted um, because of their engagement in anti-government activities or challenging racism or any number of other things. There's also, and I think this is important to understand, numbers of people who are imprisoned for various reasons who become politically conscious once they're inside. Uh, there's historical examples of this that go back quite a long way, but um, what's important to understand is that, that, that separating these issues isn't as critical as understanding the role of consciousness when you're inside. If you arrive in prison and you're conscious already, you will be treated in a very different way. If you develop your consciousness when you're in prison, you also will be treated in a very different way by the whole institution of imprisonment. Um, so that kind of political targeting results in harsh treatment and people but being put into isolation for not necessarily overt acts at all once you're inside, but because you have the potential to influence people to challenge the system of imprisonment, that alone means that you have to be managed by the prison system in a completely different way. Because what the prisons fear the most is a level of organizing and the challenges that that leads to. So I'm really interested to hear your perspective on the political prisoner situation in the U.S. today. We know people of color make up the disproportionate majority of the incarcerated population and of the nation's political prisoners. We also know that most political prisoners happen to be jailed for their struggles against racism and depression, both here in the U.S. and abroad, one of them being yourself, of course. So my question for you is, what would you say is the correlation between liberatory struggles against racism and depression as they manifest in our own criminal justice system? Well, as I was saying before, in relationship to trying to define the term political prisoner, um, it's unmistakable that the most oppressed in any you know, in any situation are going to find themselves in a level of struggle or undertaking forms of resistance. So obviously that means black and brown folks, indigenous folks, uh, radical Asian folks um, who are struggling in any liberatory way are going to find themselves in, in conflict with the state. And in many cases, simply trying to survive in oppressed communities brings you into contact with the state because policing in and of itself reinforces white supremacy, male supremacy. Uh, and so as a result, um, you do have disproportionate representation in prisons 
of people who are either targeted by various forms of oppression or choose to struggle in defiance of the state in some way or another. The institution of prison is really a reified uh, form of white supremacy and male supremacy. And that's true for women in prison and trans folks in prison too. Um, the institution is designed to reinforce the structural nature of the U.S., of capitalism, of imperialism, which is why there are people who are targeted because of the Islamophobic nature of the state or the ways in which um, people who are struggling outside the borders because imperialism sees itself as a global power and having the right to adjudicate struggle, it also chooses to imprison people from other nations in the world in the name of fighting for democracy, in the name of the U.S. being the greatest country in the world. It, it places upon itself and, and on the rest of the world this role of adjudicating justice in the name of all the great values of the U.S., which, you know, when you step back is a, I mean, it's more than arrogant. You know, it's really about trying to control the terms of who rules and who maintains power and how that's done, generally through, you know, an incredible arrogance and, and, and acts of violence, whether it's globally or internally. So I want to talk to you about two crises impacting people of color and the prison population in general today, the COVID-19 pandemic and mass incarceration. What's interesting is that preceding the eruption of social unrest in wider society that followed the murder of George Floyd in late May has also been the rise of widespread unrest coinciding with the spread of COVID-19 from within our own spaces of incarceration. How would you say we can connect the dots between struggles against racism on the streets and the unrest also taking place within our prisons, as well as the political repression of both? Why would you say this is part of the same structural system? Well, I think, I think it's really important to kind of embrace the spontaneous upsurge of, of activity of resistance in communities against unrestrained police violence. I mean, mind you, unrestrained police violence is hardly a new phenomenon in a settler colony like the United States. I mean, with mass imprisonment that starts, you know, in the, in the eighties, say, uh, where, you know, the movements of the 60s and 70s were looking at about 200,000 people being locked up in the United States, whereas now it's well over 2 million. That's what mass imprisonment means. And it is, in fact, an exponential growth. And it comes about precisely because of the levels of movement, resistance, uh, objecting to racism, objecting to, to imperial wars, all those things that are taking place, certainly the conditions in oppressed communities. And as, as that upsurge continues, the role of the state is to, okay, in order to maintain power, we have to destroy the leadership of that, undermine the organizing attempts, and put people away who have the potential to lead further uprisings. So right. mass imprisonment is comes at the tail end of what is called COINTELPRO, which again doesn't end simply because of congressional intervention in nineteen in the early nineteen seventies. Um, when it's exposed that there's a whole strategy 
to destroy radical organizing in the United States with a particular emphasis on the black liberation struggle and various organizations within it. Certainly the Black Panther Party, one of the larger organizations and one with a growth potential that is seen as being particularly destabilizing to the United States because of its politics. I think there's been some changes because of the challenges in the streets to how we look at policing and its role and function. And I think that needs to continue to build. And I think people need to also inform themselves and think about what policing in the prisons looks like and who's impacted and why aren't we caring more about those people. Whether they have political consciousness or not, that is irrelevant to the fundamental need to stand behind the human rights of anybody. So Claude, I'd like to transition to a discussion about proxies. We really want to be able to grasp this opportunity to mobilize people against racial oppression, right? Not only as it's taking place on the streets, but also, of course, within our prisons. So my question to you is, what makes prison struggles successful? Are there any historical examples of successful prison struggles we can learn from? Sure. Of course, there are. There are tremendous historical examples of uprisings, of rebellions within prisons over human rights issues in, in resistance to the kinds of violence, racism, and oppression that take place. You can see if you read the papers of the Young Lords or the Black Panther Party or the American Indian Movement, a consistent concern and attention to the members of their communities that are locked up and a support for a level of consciousness around human rights, fundamental human rights that exist. There's a social responsibility that we have on the outside to challenge the existence of that structural violence in the first place. And so that's why I feel like I would I would argue that movements need to center the issue of prisons far more than they do because these are the people who have been disappeared out of our communities with intent. Whether or not they've done antisocial stuff or not is irrelevant. Those are our people. They weren't born criminals and they shouldn't be treated as criminals it's natural to be rebellious, to resist oppression. That is a rational act by any human being. And when people function collectively, it is a rational act to organize and to create mechanisms by which that becomes a collective effort from the inside, from inside the walls. Um, one of the most intense examples I would cite would be the struggles within the California prisons that happened and that resulted in hunger strikes um, starting in 2011 and ending in 2013. The demands of that level of organizing were such that they were, again, about human rights and the level of organizing succeeded within the prison because of a level of conscious anti-racist organizing on the inside. So you had leaders from various sets coming together. And in 2012, for example, there was a signed agreement and hostilities that represented a position that said, if we're ever gonna functionally advance our struggle we have to come together and unite internally to face the institution and the cops that are responsible for, for the conditions that exist here. 
In 2011, there were 6,000 people in prisons all over the state that chose to take action in a single day. Shortly after that, there were 10,000 people that did that. And by 2013, there there were 30,000 prisoners who took action simultaneously. Multiracial, organized, united around human rights issues. And that represented close to a quarter of the population of the prisons in California that were willing to take action simultaneously to advance these demands. Before we go, Claude, do you have any advice for emerging activists or those of us interested in further pursuing political prisoner solidarity work? In any kind of period like this, when there's emerging resistance in the streets, there will be a lot of people who get busted. Our responsibility, if we haven't been busted, is to support the people who have, regardless of what they're being charged with, because they're part of this spontaneous upsurge or organized upsurge. Um, We need to recognize the essence of what they've taken risks for and not allow them to be isolated. That's true for prisoners in general. The purpose of the prison is to basically disappear people from the community. Our responsibility as part of that community is to prevent that from happening. We can't stop the fact that they are caught up in this so-called judicial process and may end up locked up for a long period of time. But what we can do is to make sure that that doesn't impede the organizing that they were a part of, that that we continue to grow that, and that we not allow the state to isolate them and take them totally out of the picture. The prisons are full of over 2 million people who've essentially been forcibly removed from our communities already. And our struggle, whether they're family and loved ones or people that we don't know, is to change that, is to reverse that process and to make sure that they aren't isolated and removed in a permanent way from the fabric of social growth and the advancing of struggles that try to create a more just and humane world. That was Claude Marks, everyone, director at Freedom Archives. Claude, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Moody Southwestern soul music influenced by traditional blues. Jess Najima gives voice to our collective breaking heart. We are joined now with the voice and heart behind Jess Najima, whose song American Blues we heard just before the intermission. Najima, welcome to the show. We're so grateful to share your songs, which have been described as bringing a modern urgency to traditional music perfect for these troubled times. Given the troubled times, how would you describe your own role in movement work? Um, Well, first, let me say thank you for having me on. Thank you for, um, you know, having such positive things to say about my music and um, uh, for believing in me. I I really appreciate that. So that's the first thing I want to say. I think my role in the movement is as an agitator. You know, somebody has to be the person who yells the emperor has no clothes. Uh, That person's not always liked by most people. (laughs) um, So I feel like in spaces, you know, I'm known as a person who gets things done. I'm known as a person who can make connections. And I'm known as a person who can call bullshit. Like, I'm not the person you call when you want a diplomat, say, or when you guys need to have a meeting between the coalition and the city council. 
I am the person to call if you want to get in an argument at the city council, though. You know, <laughs> that's kind of, I feel like, my role. Um, and I think it's okay that that's my role. Um, I used to try and be in space in a different way than I am as a person, and that doesn't work either. So what I have accepted is that I just really don't like a lot of stuff um, that other people maybe consider important movement work. I consider not as important or stuff that people consider necessary. I actually think is uh, a, a waste of time. And I think that's okay too. There's, there's gotta be all of us in there, all of us balancing it out, all of us figuring it out, people um, pulling weight at different times in different ways. Um, so I guess that's kind of how I see, see myself within, within my movement work. Most recently, I guess I was part of the celebration, um, of black lives that we had here in Tucson. Um, it was, we've had black lives matter, um, events and, and stuff, uh, you know, every at least once a year for the last like a big event where we will have music and um you know vendors and all that kind of stuff um and this was the biggest one we've ever done like the largest one we've done before this was maybe 200 250 people and it would be people coming and going um this year obviously because of covid it put a lot of restrictions but it just turned into this moment and we ended up with like 3000 people showing up. We had amazing black speakers, performers, um, queer and trans allies. We had just like a, a real, I feel like a real representation of what black lives matter is about. Um, and I was part of the team that put that together um, and put the show together and, and brought the people together because that's what I've been doing all these years, right? Meeting other organizers, talking to people, traveling places, getting to know people, um, because that's a huge part of this building of, uh, in my mind, this building of, of an alternative to the system we have, uh, a system of people who are connected to each other and who can help each other um, instead of relying on a government that's shown that it's just going to take our money and then put us in prison, you know. Thank you for that. Your work and music is such an integral part of the Tucson community. Tell us what's next for both you and your music. Uh -huh. um, well, I think you know that, um, but not, I'm sure most people listening to this won't know that I am leaving Tucson. I'm so like, you have to understand I'm a real Tucson native. Tucson, Arizona is a place where, uh, people aren't from here. Um, or a lot, most of the people here aren't from here. A lot of decisions get made for Tucson about what Tucson will be by people who, don't know much about what it means to be from Tucson. Um, so like us locals are kind of um, territorial. And, uh, and so for me to like pack my bags and leave Tucson, this will be the first time that I'm doing something like this in, you know, over a decade. Um, so I'm taking my music on the road. Um, I have an RC505 looper, uh, which is the is a way for me to create music um, more almost it's like electronic based, but it's also kind of more kinetic sounds like uh, sounds that I make myself or small sounds. It's kind of like this stripped down bare um, kind of lo-fi sounding uh, way to create music that I, I really enjoy. And, um, I'm, I'm of course writing my own music, um, but also reinterpreting 
lots of the classic blues music that I love. Um, so I have like a whole catalog of old blues songs that I've reinterpreted in this new way. And um, because I can, and I am a mobile being, I am just going to pack my stuff. And um, I've got some gigs lined up in Tanzania, in Zanzibar. And from there, I'm going to try and book more gigs and travel as much as I can and play um, as many places uh, on the continent of Africa as I can. Um, so this is a really exciting time for me. It really is. Uh, and I am really excited to take my music overseas. And I'm really excited to see how being overseas influences my music and changes it. Um, I, I can't wait to um, hopefully do some collaborations when I'm in Tanzania with Tanzanian artists, but also other American, Black American artists. Um, there's a huge Black American ex expatriate community in Zanzibar. So I hope to make connections with other Black Americans who are living and making music already in Zanzibar. Well, I cannot wait to hear what music comes out of all your travels and also to hear about your experience abroad, which sounds amazing. So the question on everyone's mind is where can we find your music and most specifically support you by purchasing it? Oh, thank you so much for asking that wonderful question. <laughs> um, right now, I uh, you can download the album, uh, my album Queenie and my EP Endless Summers. You can download those off of Bandcamp. You can also order them from C CD Baby um, if you want to pay for the music, which I always appreciate. Um, but you can also just listen to them, which is fine with me. If you listen to them on any of the streaming um, applications, any of them, but no matter how obscure you think it is, my album is probably on it. So you can stream them, you know, throw some of my songs on a playlist that you share with your friends. All of those things help me out as an independent artist, and it does translate into opportunities for me. Thank you for that. As I said, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. We're going to end with one last song, and I'm wondering if you can help us decide which one to play. Well, since I'm leaving, it would be cool to uh, for you to play Rainbow to Follow. It's a song that you know, has a lot of meaning to me. When I wrote it, I was really kind of coming out of a period of exhaustion with um, movement work, or I was in a period of exhaustion with movement work. And then also a whole bunch of crazy stuff happened in my life. My car got stolen. I just, I had to move. All of these things happened all at once. And I just felt so overwhelmed and you know, after all of that went down and I had a few months, um, I started writing this song like kind of in the middle of the night. And it, it was like it really manages to capture this this feeling I didn't seem to be able to express with words um, of kind of like of of pain, of sadness, but also of hope and healing and um, maybe like cautious optimism, which is my state of being right now. I love that. And on that note, here is Rainbow to Follow. I use 
Again, that was Rainbow to Follow from the album Queenie by Jess Najima. If you are a musician who would like to feature unsigned material on The People Yes, please reach out at thepeopleyes at afgj.org. To hear more of Jess Najima, you can find the link to her Bandcamp page in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next month, where we'll continue to bring you important voices in the movement toward collective liberation. By subscribing to The People Yes, you won't miss an episode. You can learn more about the Alliance for Global Justice at our website, afgj.org. Please support our work by making a tax-deductible donation. Link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon.